Well, good morning. So wasn't that a joy to see Beth declare her faith in the Lord Jesus? So let's, let's give her... So far, I've never, I haven't lost a single one yet. So praise the Lord for that. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together to worship your great name. We thank you that you are a savior, Lord, that that is the kind of God you are. As we're going to see in your word, you are the living God and you are a God who saves. And we, we thank you for hearing of that profession of your, your salvation of, of Beth. We thank you for granting her that faith uh, to turn from sin and to turn to you and to seek you for salvation. And we thank you that you have saved her and brought her to new life in yourself. And we know that that, that, is, that, that promise is available to all uh, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you sent your son to live a righteous life in their place and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, and he rose from the dead, showing that you accepted his payment. And now he opens, or he, he outstretches out his hands to each one of us, inviting us to come to him for salvation. And, and Lord, we, we pray that each one here who has accepted that invitation and has come to him, that you would strengthen their faith in you through your word that we look at this morning. And any who have not yet uh, trusted in Jesus for salvation, may you open their eyes to see that he is a mighty savior and may you grant them to turn from their sin and to, to run to him uh, for his grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy today, chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And today is going to be the last question uh, from the ones that we collected from you all a, a few months ago that I'm going to answer uh, in this way. And I'm sure we're going to do it again, so be thinking of new questions, and the time will come, we'll, we'll put the box out on the organ again, and you can drop those questions in there. But out of the questions we received, this is the last one I'm going to answer uh, and the, the question that was submitted was not so much a question, it was just a Bible reference written on a piece of paper. And that Bible reference was 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. And I'm going to read that for us. Paul writes, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And I assume that the question behind that Bible reference that someone wrote down was this. What does Paul mean when he says that God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers? What does he mean by that? Well, before we attempt to answer that question, let's try to get a sense of what Paul is trying to accomplish through the whole letter of 1 Timothy. It's important that we in answering questions like this, understand the context in which such a statement is to be found. So let's consider what Paul was trying to do in writing this letter to Timothy. Well, 1 Timothy was probably one of the last three biblical letters that Paul wrote. In the book of Acts, chapter 28, where do we find Paul? Anybody remember? In prison, yep, in prison, in Rome. 
And that was probably around the year 60 to 62 AD. And it's apparently during that Roman imprisonment that Paul wrote the so-called prison epistles, which are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And when you read the book of Philippians, which he wrote during that time in prison, in chapter 1, verse 25, and chapter 2, verse 24, we find Paul expressing a, a confident expectation of being released from prison. The same with the book of Philemon, verse 22. He expresses confidence that, that he will be released from prison. And all commentators that I read believe that that expectation was realized, that Paul was released from prison. And they believe from some extra-biblical writings that probably Paul went on a fourth missionary journey. But he would get imprisoned again in Rome. And that second imprisonment would happen around the year 67 A.D. That second imprisonment would not end in release. It would end in martyrdom for Paul. And it is between the, that first and second imprisonment that Paul wrote the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. He wrote 2 Timothy during his second imprisonment. When you read 2 Timothy, there's no longer any expectation of release. He's expecting to die when you read 2 Timothy. So those three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they are known as the pastoral letters because in them, Paul is directing Timothy and Titus as to the pastoral care that they need to be giving to the churches that, that, God, that Paul has tasked them with overseeing. Now, who was Timothy? Well, if you're in 1 Timothy, go ahead and look at chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy was Paul's beloved son in the faith. Paul was his mentor. Paul was the one who had nurtured Timothy in faith in Christ. And Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. He was always associated with Paul. He went on missionary journeys with Paul. And Paul writes to Timothy as Timothy is ministering to the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. So Paul had left Timothy behind in Ephesus in order to minister to that church. And he and Titus... To be sure, they were pastors, but they were more than pastors. They were apostolic representatives. All right? I'm a pastor. I can't say that I'm a representative of an apostle, but that was Timothy and that was Titus. They were responsible for being Paul's eyes, ears, hands, and mouth in the places where Paul himself could not be. And they were responsible for putting in place the doctrine and the practice that would need to be carried on by the church after Paul and the apostles died. So Paul and the other apostles, they weren't going to live forever, right? And so Paul dis, uh, sends out Timothy and Titus to establish godly leadership in the church and to prescribe how the church should function so that the church can go on being the church even after the apostles are gone. That's what Timothy and Titus were tasked with doing. 
And in this first letter to Timothy, Paul has three main points that he wants to get across to Timothy. And those three things become very clear as you read through the whole book. First, in writing this letter to Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy to be on guard and to refute the false teachers who are beginning to rise up within the church. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Paul meets with the elders from the Ephesian church and he warns them? He says, there are going to be wolves that rise up from among you. Well, this is the time when what Paul said has come to fulfillment. Timothy is in the church of Ephesus and false teaching is beginning to rise up from within that church. And Paul is writing Timothy to put down that error. Look at chapter 1 again. He says, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And you'll, you'll find warnings or, or exhortations like that throughout this letter. You find it at the end of chapter 1. You find it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. You find it in chapter 5, verse 24. You find it multiple times in chapter 6, where Paul is urging Timothy to refute error, to be on guard against men who are teaching false doctrine. So that's the first thing Paul wants to accomplish in writing this letter. The second thing Paul wants Timothy to accomplish and that he writes Timothy about is this. He wants Timothy to teach and prescribe the biblical doctrine and practice which was to govern the life of the church from then on. For example, chapter 2. All the way through chapter 3, Paul, or Paul is giving instruction as to how the church is to conduct himself, itself. Verses 1 through 7, he, he, first of all, as top of the list, is he tells the, the church to be praying, praying for leaders. Uh, verses 9 through 15, he gives instruction to the women how they should conduct themselves. Then in chapter 3, he gives qualifications for elders and deacons, the governance of the church. Then look at chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And you'll, you'll get instruction like that throughout the, less, the rest of the letter. Instructions as to how the church is to conduct itself. So that's the second reason for Paul's writing. Third, the third reason for him writing this letter is he wants Timothy, Timothy who is tasked with fighting back the wolves and putting in place the proper conduct of the church, Paul wants Timothy to make sure that he is watchful over his own heart, that he's watchful over his own doctrine, that he not become a false teacher, and that he's watchful over his own conduct, that he walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which he's been called. Things are going to go haywire if 
Timothy, while instructing others to not teach error and instructing others to live a certain way, things are going to go haywire if he himself begins teaching error and starts living in a wrong way. For example, look at chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. That's a lot of pressure on Timothy. If he fails, the church at Ephesus will fail. So this letter is crucial. This this letter is very important that Paul is writing to Timothy. The future of the church at Ephesus is at stake. The verse that we are looking at today, chapter 4, verse 10, is found in a passage in which Paul is trying to accomplish that third thing, that third reason for writing, to encourage Timothy to keep a watch over his own soul. Let's read verses 6 through 10 just so we can get the flow of the passage that ends with verse 10, which is what we're trying to answer a question about. So chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, In pointing out these things, what's these things? It's all the instructions that Paul is giving to the church for how it's to conduct itself. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers." In verse 6, Paul, as I said, doesn't simply want Timothy nourishing the church on the word of God. He wants Timothy to be nourishing himself on the word of God as well, which is the only way that he can truly be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In verse 7, Paul doesn't simply want Timothy to tell others to avoid these speculative teachings. He wants Timothy himself to be careful not to fall into such speculations. And verses 7 and 8, Paul doesn't only want Timothy to be encouraging others to pursue godliness. He wants Timothy himself to be pursuing godliness in his own life. And the reason why he gives for Timothy to pursue godliness is what? It's profitable. Profitable for the present life, and profitable for the life to come. He said right before that, in verse 8, bodily discipline is of little profit. And usually we take that to mean that Paul is giving a little bit of a nod toward physical exercise. But in the context, I'm not sure that's what Paul's talking about. Because go back up to verses 1 through 3. Look at what Paul says there in his warning against false teachers. He says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, 
by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And notice what these men teach. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So these false teachers, they were being quite severe regarding what? Temporal matters, bodily matters, right? But they were being quite loose with what? With their doctrine, right? With their morality. And Paul's clearly highlighting that bodily discipline, if you're only focused on disciplining your body, but you're not giving any attention to godliness, there's very little profit that's going to come of that. He's exhorting Timothy to make his godliness a priority, to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul wants Timothy to really take this instruction on pursuing godliness to heart. He says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. This is not something to hem and haw about. This is not something to put down toward the bottom of your priority list, Timothy. This is to be at the very top. And then in verse 10, which is our problem verse, Paul gives the reason why Timothy should labor and strive for the godliness that brings profit for the life to come. So in 6 to 9, he said, pursue godliness. Verse 10 is the reason why. For, it is for this, that is, pursuing godliness, pursuing profit for the life to come. It is for this we labor and strive. Why? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The reason why Timothy should be laboring and striving for godliness, for profit regarding the life to come, is that he has fixed his hope on the living God. The, re the only reason why you can have this kind of motivating hope, the only reason why you could have a hope that would drive you to pursue godliness is because of the one in whom your hope is placed, right? And who is God described as being this one that Paul and Timothy have fixed their hope upon? What's the first thing Paul says about this God they have fixed their hope on? What kind of God is he? The living God, right? The living God. If God is not alive, am I going to have hope in him? Am I going to pursue godliness for his sake? No, I'm not, right? But not only is he the living God, but how else is he described? the Savior of all men, especially of believers. If God is not a saving God, what kind of hope am I going to have? Not much. Why am I going to pursue godliness? There's no reason why I'm going to pursue godliness if God is not a living God and a saving God. So verse 10, it's very important that we understand what Paul is saying because it forms the grounds for why Timothy is going to be motivated to pursue godliness. So it's, it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here in verse 10. So let's try to figure out what he means when he says God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Well, in doing so, let's, let's focus on one very important detail. 
we need to take note of Paul's language. Paul says, God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. That word especially is crucial. It's the Greek word malasta, and it's a, it's a comparative word, malasta. He says, God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Tells you that God is more a Savior for believers than he is for unbelievers. There's a, a greater degree of his saving activity as it relates to believers as opposed to everyone else. Let's look at how Paul uses this word elsewhere in this letter. Go over to chapter 5 and verse 8. Malista shows up there. Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially, Malista, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, let's, let's look at this verse. You see how Paul starts with a big category and then he hones in on a more specific category. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own, probably a reference to family, including extended family, because the context is talking about what? If you look up in verse 3. Widows, right? And if a widow, verse 4, has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents. So it's family that is the context in which Paul is saying this. If anyone, verse 8, does not provide for his own, his own family, he's denied the faith. That's the, the broader category, but then he makes it more specific, doesn't he? He says, especially for those of his household, which means those of his family who dwell with him in his house, right? He's especially to provide for them. If my parents and my sisters, my brothers-in-law and my nephew, if they need something that I can provide for them, and I do not provide it for them, according to verse 8, what am I doing? I'm denying the faith, right? Well, what if my wife and my boys need something and I refuse to provide it for them? What am I doing? Denying the faith, right? Which is a greater denial of the faith? Not taking care of those in my own household or not taking care of my more extended family? Yeah, my own household, right? It's especially grievous if I don't take care of them because the responsibility is more immediate upon me. In both cases, the extended family and the more household family, in both cases, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm failing to provide, right? But the degree of my failure is much greater when it relates to that more specific subset that he's talking about, those in my household. Drop down in verse, uh, chapter 5 to verse 17 for another example. Verse 17, Paul says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So, Paul again, he gives two categories. There's one broader category, and then there's another category which is a part of that broad category, but more specific, right? He says those in the category of elders who rule well are worthy of what? Double honor, 
But then he highlights a smaller subcategory within that broader category, which is the elders who rule well and who work hard at preaching and teaching. Paul says they are especially worthy of that double honor. So you see, for both groups, we are to consider them worthy of double honor, right? But the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching are especially to be considered that. Now let's see another example. Go over to Galatians chapter 6. This is the last example we'll look at. Galatians chapter 6 and then verse 10. And this verse is actually pretty similar to the verse we're looking at in chapter 4, verse 10 of 1 Timothy. So Galatians 6 verse 10, Paul writes, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So in that verse we see we're to do good to all people, the big category, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith, which is a smaller subset included within that category. And again, we're to do good to both groups, but we're to do so in a higher degree toward those who are believers in the household of the faith. So you see, in each case where malista is used, and it's the same for the other seven uses in the New Testament, in each case, the difference, try to follow me here, the difference for what is being done for the big category versus what is being done for the smaller subcategory is, as one commentator, one commentator said, a difference of degree, not kind. In other words, you're not doing two different kinds of things for the two different categories, right? You're not doing one thing for the broad group and a different kind of thing for the smaller group. You're doing the same kind of thing to both groups. Chapter 5, verse 8, you were providing. Providing for extended family, providing for more immediate family. In chapter 5, verse 17, you were considering elders worthy of double honor, and you were considering elders who work hard at preaching and teaching worthy of double honor. And then Galatians 6, you're doing good to all people, you're doing good to that subset of people who is the household of the faith. So you're doing the same kind of thing to both groups, but in a greater degree for the smaller group. Now let's come back to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10. That last part of the verse that we have a question about. God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So you have God doing the same kind of thing for both groups, but the smaller group, he is doing it to a higher degree. What is God doing for both groups? Or what is he being to them? A savior, right? He's the savior of all men, but to a higher degree, he's the savior of believers. Now, there are some who take this verse and they believe that Paul is teaching that God gives eternal salvation to all people, regardless of whether they believe or not. Well, in order to take that view of this verse, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to cut out this verse from your Bible, and you're going to have to take your Bible and chuck it out the window, right? 
because that obviously does not accord with what the rest of the scriptures say. It doesn't even accord with what Paul says elsewhere. For example, go back to 2 Thessalonians, which is the book right before this one. Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. And we're looking at verses 6 through 9. Paul there says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's writing to believers. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Does that sound like salvation for unbelievers? No. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So clearly, Paul is not teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He's not teaching that God's saving of all people means eternal salvation in every case. He's not saying that. Now there's, so we can take that view and chuck that view out the window because it does not accord with what the Bible teaches. Now I, I had planned on giving you a list of views, other uh, legitimate views of, of what chapter 4 verse 10 is saying, and I was planning on walking you through why I thought each view was not sufficient, and then telling you which view I landed on, but I realized I wasn't going to be able to do that, not in a helpful way. So I'm just going to present what I, the view I found most persuasive and try to argue it from the scriptures. And if you're interested, though, in what those other views are and why I, who am nothing but for my own sanctification and my own responsibility before the Lord, found them to be deficient, just ask me and I'll send you the whole sermon, all right? But I'm just going to present to you now what I believe this verse is saying, what Paul is saying in this verse. So let's look at verse 10 of chapter 4. When Paul says that God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, he is saying that God saves all men, but he saves believers to a far greater degree. Now, how is that not a universalist statement? How am I not saying what I just threw out as wrong? Well, let me ask you this. Is hell the only thing men need saving from? Are hell and slavery to sin the only things men need saving from? Is hell the only thing God saves people from? Of course, sin and the wrath of God are the things men most need saving from, right? That is what we most need to be saved from. But men are so weak and so needy that they need to be saved from a whole host of things. And God is so gracious and kind and long-suffering that he does save all men from a host of terrors every moment of every day, doesn't he? When you woke up this morning with a roof over your head and clothes on your back, what was that? 
Did you even think about that? I know I did not. God was saving you from exposure. When you threw the the bread in the toaster and got your toast and you cooked up your eggs, what was God doing? He was saving you from starvation, right? When you got sick and you didn't know how it was going to turn out, but you got better, what was God doing? He, He was saving you from an untimely death. When you were driving down the road and you saw that car coming towards you cross the center line, but before it got to you, it crossed back onto the right side, the correct side of the road, that was God saving you from an untimely death. If he's sovereign, we must acknowledge that, right? If you are sitting here today on these comfortable pews, rather than burning in the fires of hell and wailing and gnashing your teeth at the agonies that you feel, that is God saving you from sliding into hell this very moment and giving you an extra day to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God is indeed the Savior of all men, saving believers and unbelievers from countless calamities every single day. But God is especially the Savior of believers. God saves believers to a far greater degree. Why? Because he saves believers from the things they most need saving from, right? Which are what? Hell and slavery to sin. Now, I I personally find that view to be most persuasive because it takes seriously every detail of what Paul says in this verse. It takes malasta seriously. That's a comparative word. If you change, if you try to say God is a savior one way to unbelievers and a different kind, he's doing a different kind of thing for believers, a comparative word makes no sense there because you're not comparing anymore, right? But that's not the only reason why I find this this view persuasive. This view also accords nicely with other statements that Paul makes in this same letter. In this very same letter, Paul repeatedly speaks of common grace blessings that all men experience, but that believers experience to a greater degree. For example, go back up to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Remember, it was talking about those false teachers who were, verse 3, forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. Abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, are believers the only ones who get to enjoy God's foods that he makes for us? No, unbelievers get to eat God's food, right, as well. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So even there, Paul is describing blessings that all people get to partake of. But for the believer, those things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Those things are more enjoyable because it leads us to contemplate the goodness of our God who gave it to us, a truth that unbelievers reject and do not think about. Same with marriage as well. Now look at chapter 6, verse 13. 
Look at what Paul says about God there. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who does what? Gives life to all things. God gives life to all things. He gives life to unbelievers, right? But he gives life especially to believers because he gives them life that never ends, right? He gives life to all people, but especially to believers. To an infinitely greater degree does he bless believers. This view that I've presented to you, it also fits with the purpose for which Paul wrote this verse. Remember that Paul wrote verse 10 to give a reason for why Timothy should train himself for godliness. When Paul says that God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater, which Paul does a lot. He's telling Timothy that if God saves all men, including unbelievers, moment by moment in this present life, how much more will he save believers for the life to come? Timothy's hope in God would not be disappointed because God is a living God. And this God is saving people constantly. It's something that we see him doing all the time. You're driving down the highway and you see a close call happen. And you think, I don't know how that person avoided losing their life today. God was saving that person from temporal harm. You can see it all around you all the time. If God does that for unbelievers, will he not save in the greatest degree believers? So in light of that, Timothy, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness because God is a living God, a saving God, who will make sure that you make it to the life to come. So live in the light of that. If you're an unbeliever sitting here today, if you have not yet turned from your sin, you have not yet trusted in Jesus, you've experienced this. You've experienced God save you time and time again. You may not have ever acknowledged it, but it has happened. I remember talking with a guy who was in military-type service, and he recounted to me, he was an unbeliever, but he recounted to me a situation in which there was no way to get out. You know, that the enemy was, was overpowering him and his unit, and he, he threw out a prayer to God. And out of nowhere, this, I think if I remember him telling it right, this, this tree fell down, providing an opening for him and his guys to get out of there. God saved him and his unit, temporally speaking. And if you're an unbeliever, you've experienced things like that. But you need to know that if you do not run to Christ for ultimate salvation from your sins and from the wrath of God, though you are experiencing to some degree the fact that God is a saving God, you are going to find that there is a limit to God's saving of you. To show you this, let's go back to Isaiah 63, and this will be, be where we end. Isaiah 63 where we find the prophet talking about the experience of Israel. Israel experienced the saving power of God, did they not? That first generation, 
when they were delivered from the land of Egypt. Isaiah 63, look at verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his great compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their what? Their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence did what? Saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. You think, think about the Israelites in Egypt. They were saved by God from slavery. And then when they were wandering through the wilderness, they were saved by God from starvation. And as their shoes and their clothes did not wear out, God was saving them from exposure. And yet, what did that first generation fail to do? Believe, right? Even though they had been saved by God countless times, they refused to believe in him. And because of their persistent unbelief, God stopped what for them? He stopped saving them. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. If you're an unbeliever, one day God will stop saving you. And he will give you up to the terrors that are pursuing you. But if you believe in the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners to the ultimate degree, sinners like you, and if you believe that he rose from the dead to bring eternal life to sinners like you, and if you confess with all your heart that Jesus is Lord and you surrender your life to him, he will save you from that which you most need saving from, which is the wrath of God and slavery to your sin. And the moment you believe in him, you will experience the reality that God is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. And because your hope is fixed on him, you will, with Timothy and Paul, you will labor, you will strive to live a life of godliness because you know that there's a life beyond this present one that God is bringing you to. And you will want to be storing up treasure there where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's pray. Father, you truly are a gracious God. There are manifold ways in which you have saved us. Even just this morning, Lord, the fact that we are sitting here in this room, you have saved us from a host of calamities that would have prevented us from coming to this place. And you have spared us and allowed us to sit here and to hear the gospel. And Lord, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, you have saved us from what we most need saving from. And even the things that happen to us in this life that we feel like you're not saving us from, trials that come, sickness that comes, pain that comes, and we wonder, why are you not saving me from this if you're a savior? Well, you're not saving me from this temporal trial because of my ultimate salvation. You are, through this trial, working a greater ultimate salvation for me. 
All the trials that believers face are working together to give us a greater enjoyment of eternity once we get there. And Lord, for anybody who has not yet turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, help them, please open their eyes to see all the ways that you have saved them. Help them to not be ungrateful. Help them to see your mercy and to see that you have given them time and that you are even now calling to them to repent and trust in Jesus for ultimate salvation, for the greatest degree of salvation. And may they run to you, you who are a a mighty and a willing Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.